I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This episode is part three of The Life of Julius Caesar. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that you can reach me at ben at httotw.com. Feel free to send me your questions, comments, feedback, uh, request certain episodes, anything else. Feel free to reach out. Uh, I love hearing from my listeners. Okay, before we dive in, let's summarize where we are at in the life of Caesar. He was born in Rome to a family that was upper class but somewhat poor. As a boy, he was gifted and precocious. He was the only one to stand up to the dictator Cinna and live to tell the tale. He gets a great education, serves bravely and capably in the Roman army, and eventually has a long and distinguished political career. This career is fueled by a massive amount of debt, most of it issued by an unbelievably rich Roman named Crassus. Caesar is governor of Spain, where he puts down some rebellious tribesmen and proves to be a very capable general. He then comes back to Rome, where he resumes his political career and becomes consul, which is the top position in Roman politics. His year as consul is very strange and marked by legal irregularities, but he is able to accomplish a lot by partnering with the other two most powerful men in Rome, Pompey and Crassus, in an informal alliance known as the First Triumvirate. After his year as consul, Caesar leaves to become the governor of Gaul, an area corresponding roughly to modern-day France. Upon arriving in Gaul, Caesar finds himself quickly embroiled in war, first with a tribe called the Helvetii, then with some Germanic tribes, and finally with a collection of Gallic tribes called the Belgae. Caesar is nearly defeated, but manages to rally his troops, defeat the Belgae, and establish control over a large portion of Gaul. And that is where we left off. The next year, in 54 BC, there are some rebellions in the north of Gaul, which Caesar manages to put down. These rebels thought they could escape Roman rule because they were seafaring Gauls. They just figured when Caesar marches up with his big army, they'll set sail into the English Channel in their ships, and the Romans won't be able to do anything about it. Caesar has to march up with his army and build a fleet from scratch of an entirely new type of ship in order to fight these rebels. But he manages to do so, and he develops and builds this new fleet and uses it to put down the rebellion in northern Gaul. The next year, in 55 BC, Caesar has another issue pop up. Just like two years previously, another Germanic tribe is crossing over the Rhine into Gaul. Remember, the Rhine was the unofficial dividing line between Gaul and Germany, and the Romans did not like Germans, so this is a problem for Caesar that Germans are moving closer to Rome through Gaul. So he charges over with his army, takes their leadership hostage, defeats these Germanic tribes, sends them running, and then he decides he wants to send a message. He's concerned that these Germans feel too safe over on the other side of the Rhine, so he wants to punish them. Caesar marches his army to the Rhine River, this natural border between Gaul and Germany, and the Rhine is such a massive, swift-moving river that no bridge had ever been built over it at this point in history. It was just too big and too fast-moving. The way that people moved across it was by taking rafts. So the Gauls, who are very happy that Caesar has just driven off this tribe of Germans, offers to ferry him and his army across the Rhine on their rafts. But Caesar declines their offer. He wants to send a message that the Germans won't forget anytime soon. So he builds the world's first bridge over the Rhine River. This is a major production. Don't think just because it was 2,000 years ago that this is some skimpy, primitive bridge of a bunch of rafts tied together. No, this was a real bridge. They have trained engineers, and they're using cranes and other pretty sophisticated technology. 
and they build it in only 10 days. After 10 days, they march onto the other side of the river to find that the Germans are all gone. From the German perspective, the bridge that Caesar just built would be the most sophisticated piece of engineering that they had ever seen in their entire lives. And this really freaks them out. So they abandon their villages and flee to the interior of their country. Caesar doesn't have time to chase them all the way into the interior of Germany. Uh, he needs to be present in Gaul, especially with minor rebellions popping up every year. So he burns some nearby villages, uh, then turns around and marches his army back across the Rhine into Gaul and destroys the bridge behind him as if to say, look, this is no big deal for us. This wasn't even hard. This bridge might look impressive to you, but we built it in 10 days and we're going to destroy it just like that. And this is a big statement that no, you are not safe from Caesar just because you're on the other side of the Rhine. And it's very effective. The Germans won't cross the Rhine in any major way for years afterwards. It's also great PR back home. As we've established, the Romans really hated these big, scary Germanic barbarians. So the fact that he took the fight to the other side of the Rhine really plays well back home. In 55 BC, Caesar was not done with his publicity stunts. He decides to invade Britain. His stated reason for doing it was that there were some Gauls who had rebelled and then retreated across the English Channel to Britain to escape punishment. But everything Caesar did, he did with an eye toward his political career in Rome. This whole operation in Gaul was impressive in part not only because he was gaining a fortune, winning battles, and bringing new territory under Roman control, but he was also going where no Roman soldier had ever gone before. He was kind of like the Roman Indiana Jones. And that was impressive and sexy in Gaul, which was quite foreign as we've discussed before, but it was even more so in Britain. For the Romans, Britain was like Skull Island from King Kong. There were rumors that giants lived there, legends of these huge monstrous beasts, untold fortunes of precious metals and pearls. Some people didn't even think it really existed. So for Caesar to take an army there, he would really seem like Indiana Jones. Even if he didn't conquer anything, going to Britain would give him a big boost back in Rome just for being there and exploring. So Caesar builds a fleet to transport his army, and they set out. In the first place they come is the Cliffs of Dover. And the Cliffs of Dover are bright white, and they're 300 feet tall. I was just there last summer. I took the ferry from France over to England. And as you come up on these, these 300 foot huge white cliffs, it's this really impressive sight. And to add to the scene, the tribes of Britain had heard that Caesar was coming. So tribal warriors are standing at the top of the cliffs, painted blue with war paint, as was their custom. And you just have to imagine, try and put yourself in the position of a Roman soldier sailing over. You're setting sail for Skull Island at the end of the world, and you sail up to it, and the first thing you see are enormous bright white cliffs, unlike anything you've seen, with tall blue people standing on top of them for as far as the eye can see in both directions. This would be really scary, really intimidating, and it did. It freaked out Caesar's soldiers when they land. They're attacked by the English tribesmen, and the Roman soldiers at first don't want to get out of their ships. But after some cajoling and encouragement, they do, and the Romans establish a beachhead and a base camp in England. The invasion itself is a little anticlimactic. They fight some skirmishes and one decent-sized battle, which the Romans win, but it isn't enough to establish any real control in Britain. When autumn comes, they have to go back across the channel to settle into winter camp in Gaul. Caesar does have ambitions to do more in Britain, so while his men are in winter camp, he instructs them to build a new and improved fleet so that they can use it the next year to cross back into Britain. In the meantime, Caesar heads back to his headquarters in northern Italy for the winter. In the spring of 54 BC, Caesar writes a book called On Analogy. It is basically a style guide for Latin that recommends simple, straightforward speech over highly ornamental speech. 
And unfortunately, that book is now lost, though we do have a few surviving fragments. In one of these fragments, we can read that he wrote, quote, avoid strange and unfamiliar words as a sailor avoids rocks at sea. The book was very well received by the political and literary establishments of the day. So in addition to being a great general, you know, he's, he's the Dwight Eisenhower, the John F. Kennedy, the Indiana Jones, and also the Ernest Hemingway of his day. It is pretty interesting that he would dedicate so much time to a style guide on writing at a time when he was also so dedicated to war. You would think that his focus would be entirely and completely on winning this war in Gaul. And yet it shouldn't be too surprising to us. We have seen that all of the most powerful men in history have been exceptional communicators and have devoted significant amounts of time to perfecting the art of effective communication. And Caesar was no different. In fact, he was a pioneer in this respect. After publishing the book, Caesar heads up to Northern Gaul, where he prepares for his second invasion of Britain. But there is a hiccup. The Romans didn't have great cavalry. So for cavalry, they relied on men from allied tribes in Gaul and Germany. So as Caesar gets ready for his second invasion of Britain, he calls for allied cavalry from all over Gaul to come join him. Besides the obvious strategic benefits of having effective cavalry, there is another reason Caesar does this. The cavalry was made up of the ruling class of Gaul. So regular peasants just fought on foot, but nobles had the money to afford a horse, and they fought on horseback as cavalry. So when Caesar takes his cavalry with him, he's taking almost the entire upper class, the nobility of Gaul, with him to Britain, which gives them a lot less of a chance to hatch plots and schemes behind his back in Gaul. There is one noble by the name of Dumnorix, who doesn't want to get on the boats for Britain. He has all these excuses for why he doesn't want to go. First, he says he's deathly afraid of sailing. Then he says he's feeling sick and not up to the voyage. Then he finally says he has religious obligations back home. But Caesar knows what's going on. This guy is really ambitious. His name, Dumnorix, literally means king of the world, a goal that we fully support here at How to Take Over the World. And he has made trouble before, so Caesar knows Dumnorix is just waiting to try to make himself king behind Caesar's back. So Caesar tells Dumnorix, you're getting on the boat with me and you're coming to Britain whether you like it or not. And rather than get on the boat, Dumnorix runs away. Caesar sends some cavalry after him and tells them to bring Dumnorix back dead or alive. These soldiers catch up with Dumnorix and surround him, but he refuses to surrender. So they charge him, and as he's about to be killed, he yells, I am a free man of a free people. And he's cut down, Dumnorix dies, but that war cry would come back to haunt Caesar. The second invasion of Britain is not much better than the first. There are some bigger battles, and Caesar establishes a little bit larger of a Roman presence in Britain, but he has to cut off the invasion early because things have started to go haywire both in Rome and in Gaul. So he and his armies sail back to Gaul, and no Roman army would return to Britain for a hundred years. Back in Gaul, people were up in arms because of a bad harvest. Caesar blames this on an unusually hot summer, although it might also have had to do something with the fact that he was bringing a massive amount of warfare to the region over the previous five years. Caesar manages to calm these problems without it erupting into a major rebellion, but that winter, some tribes in central Gaul who were allied to the Romans decided that Caesar's attention was elsewhere and that this would be a good time to rise up and rebel. They betray the Roman legion in the area and slaughter them all, leaving virtually no survivors. Caesar is embarrassed and angry by this turn of events, so he plans a punitive campaign for the next year. Early in the spring of 53 BC, with snow still on the ground, he takes the rest of his legions and blitzes the rebels and starts winning battle after battle. They're unprepared for how early and fast his campaign comes. So the tribe at the heart of the rebellion, 
The ones who had slaughtered his troops were called the Eburones. Probably pronouncing that wrong, but work with me. Eventually, these Eburones decide that they've had enough of getting their trash kicked by Caesar, so they come up with a new strategy. They'll just run and hide from Caesar wherever he goes. He's marching back and forth through their territory. But remember, these are not like a very settled and urban people. The Gauls are very rural, and they can easily pull up stakes and move around to keep from getting attacked by Roman troops. So after a while of not being able to actually attack these rebels, Caesar comes up with a new strategy. He calls together all the other tribes in Gaul and basically declares a yard sale in Eburones territory. He declares it is open season to kill, plunder, and steal whatever they want with no repercussions whatsoever. In fact, the Roman legions will protect them as much as possible as they do this raiding. This creates utter devastation. I mean, imagine if a Walmart uh, said that, hey, anyone can come into a store and take whatever they want for free, right? It'd be even worse than Black Friday. Well, how many people would come and how crazy would that chaos be? And this scenario that we're seeing with Caesar is like 100 times worse than that. These Gauls loved to raid. That was what their civilization was built around. And most of these tribes had no special hatred for the Eburones, but free raiding, they can't pass up on that. And furthermore, this announcement induces panic. They're afraid that if they don't get to the Eburones first, someone else will, and that other tribe will get all the free stuff. This strategy is far more devastating than a formal war could have been. The tribe is completely wiped off the face of the map. Within a few months, there no longer is such a thing as the Eburones tribe, as all these other tribes from around Gaul come, raid, plunder, kill, and completely decimate them. This story just goes to show how powerful incentives can be. You can try to force people to do something and set up tons of systems and monitoring programs and everything you can to try to change their behavior. But it will be really expensive, and at the end of the day, it still might not work that well. Then you set up an incentive program, and boom, suddenly you get exactly what you were looking for in no time at all. Caesar understood the power of incentives, and he put them to deadly use against the Eburones. Once that is all wrapped up, Caesar goes to his headquarters in northern Italy for the winter of 53 BC. And things have gotten really bad on the home front. Crassus, one member of the Triumvirate, had died in battle. This compounded the fact that Caesar's daughter, Julia, the wife of Pompey, had died in childbirth the previous year. The death of Julia was heartbreaking for both Caesar, who was a doting father, and Pompey, who had a happy and loving marriage with her. And on a political level, the marriage was the last thing tying Pompey to Caesar. So with Crassus dead, and Pompey and Caesar no longer bound by marriage, the first triumvirate, the alliance that held nearly complete political control in Rome, was in tatters. This created instability and chaos back in Rome. The Senate building was burned to the ground, there was regular political violence on the streets of Rome, and things had turned really, really unstable and really bad. Caesar's in northern Italy while all this is happening, trying his best to manage it all. He legally couldn't return to Rome, his command was in Gaul, and he was staying as close as he could to try and keep in some contact through letter writing with Rome. And Caesar's in a really desperate situation. Crassus is dead, and Pompey no longer feels any loyalty to him. So instead of being a part of a triumvirate controlling Rome, he has to watch from afar as Pompey becomes the dominant political force in Rome. Again, he's doing as much as he can to avoid this and stay relevant, but there's only so much you can do with letter writing when Pompey is actually there in Rome, taking control. The Gauls are well aware of this, and they start to think Caesar might be distracted and vulnerable. They were also now starting to become aware of how much things had changed, 
It had been more than six years since Caesar had first marched in with his troops, and they're realizing, oh wow, we're really not in charge anymore. Caesar is. They don't like the taxes. They don't like the fact that they were not able to raid, which is a major problem since their whole society was built around raiding. And they don't like the fact that Caesar thinks he can execute whomever he would like, which he did with that guy Doom Norix, as well as with another prominent noble. They start thinking back to the words of Doom Norix, I am a free man of a free people. And they start asking themselves, are we still a free people? So they decide, okay, Caesar is distracted by all this turmoil back in Rome. He might not even be able to come back. It's now or never if we're going to throw off Roman rule. So all the nobles from all over Gaul get together and make a rebellion pact. They put in charge a Gallic noble named Vercingetorix. He's from southern Gaul in an area that was right next to Transalpine Gaul, Roman Gaul. So he had a lot of exposure to Rome and the classical world. And he brings a much more Roman style of warfare to the Gauls. Vercingetorix was organized. He demanded Roman-like discipline from his troops, and he placed heavy emphasis on supply lines and provisioning his army. For once, Caesar was going to be fighting a somewhat disciplined, coordinated army in Gaul. Vercingetorix does some really smart things. He organizes a small invasion of Transalpine Gaul to keep Caesar occupied, and then he moves his troops to cut off Caesar from his armies in the north. Caesar has a problem. He has very few resources with him, but in order for his forces in Gaul to reach him and allow him to take command of his armies, they would have to fight their way through the Gallic forces without Caesar's leadership. The one place the Gauls haven't fully cut off is this mountainous area of France called Massif Central. But they're mountainous, they're covered in six feet of snow, it's still winter, and the assumption is that there's no way that Caesar is going to be able to march through there. But Caesar, with his typical determination, decides that his armies need him, and he arranges a journey through the mountains of Massive Central. No traveler had ever made it through that area in winter, and it catches Vercingetorix by surprise, but Caesar pulls it off and meets up with his armies in Central Gaul, where they start pillaging and burning. Vercingetorix watches this grimly, and decides on a counterplan. Slash and burn. The Romans basically have no Gallic allies left at this point. Nobody left to supply them. All of Gaul is in rebellion. And Vercingetorix realizes... They haven't been able to beat the Romans in open warfare up to this point, so he decides to burn any and all villages, supplies, and crops near Caesar and retreat. The idea is to leave Caesar's troops stranded and starve them out. Of course, the tribes of central Gaul who are going to actually have to burn their crops and villages are not necessarily thrilled with this plan, but Vercingetorix manages to convince them. Here's what Caesar quotes Vercingetorix as saying in his commentaries. Quote, if this plan seems drastic or cruel to you, consider that it will be worse if instead your wives and children are dragged away into slavery while you are slaughtered, for that is the fate of the conquered. The other tribal leaders listen to Vercingetorix and think this makes sense, but they want to spare just one city. The city is called Avericum, and it is full of food stores and supplies, but they think it is so well fortified, no one could possibly conquer it. So what's the point of destroying it and destroying all these supplies? Vercingetorix says, no, we need to burn all the cities. But the other tribal leaders insist that Avericum be spared, and eventually Vercingetorix relents. Now, Vercingetorix's strategy of slashing and burning works really well, and Caesar's army starts to run out of food. It's starting to look desperate for them, so they have to go besiege the one city left in their vicinity, the supposedly impenetrable Avericum. Well, Caesar quickly realizes why they thought it would be okay to leave this city untouched. It's set on a hill with cliffs on almost every side, 
and rivers at the bottom of the cliffs. The city truly is nearly impossible to storm. But Caesar sets about solving this problem in a very Roman way. There's a quote from a British general in World War II who said, Americans don't solve their problems, they overwhelm them. And you could easily say the same thing about the Romans. And the way they do so here is they just level the ground. They work day and night for 25 days to build a massive ramp. It's 300 feet wide and 80 feet tall. The soldiers have run out of food as they're working on it, and so they're starving as they work on this thing. But Caesar, being the great general that he is, is able to keep them motivated and keep them hard at work. Finally, at the end of 25 days, they finish this huge ramp so men can just run up a gentle incline to the top of the walls around the city and attack. The Roman soldiers quickly storm the defenses and conquer the city. I love this idea of overwhelming your problems. Not every problem has an elegant, smart, inexpensive solution. Sometimes you just have to build a 300-foot ramp. And Caesar did this repeatedly from building a fleet with a new kind of boat that he had just engineered to building a bridge over the Rhine River, which no one had ever done before. I think there's a specific mindset that skips over the idea of impossible altogether. And Caesar had that. He just never considered that anything was impossible. Oh, this city is on top of a giant hill with cliffs on every side. We'll basically build our own hill right next to it and march over on top of the city. I mean, it's, he's literally moving mountains. He is literally altering the landscape. Most people look at the landscape, look at the hills and mountains and say, okay, this is what I have to work with. But Caesar looks at it and says, okay, this is the starting point, but this can all be changed. When Caesar conquers Avericum, it is a major setback for the Gauls because Caesar's army now has enough supplies to get wherever they want. Nevertheless, this actually increases the authority of this guy, Vercingetorix, because he now looks like a genius. He was the one who said, we shouldn't spare this city. So now all the other Gallic tribal leaders are thinking, okay, I guess that Vercingetorix guy really knew what he was talking about. Caesar can now strike anywhere he wants in Gaul, and he decides to make a statement. He attacks Vercingetorix's hometown of Gergovia. Caesar besieges the town, and at first it's going well, but at one point he sends his men on an attack that goes wrong, and over 700 of his men are killed. This is a big defeat, and it forces Caesar to retreat from the city. Not necessarily because of the number of men he lost, but because such a big defeat destroyed the confidence of his men. Remember how important morale was to Caesar. So he pulls his forces back from Gergovia and starts marching away. At this point, Vercingetorix mistakenly believes that the Romans are broken and in an all-out retreat. So he follows them and tries to attack them in open country. This is a mistake. The Romans were marching in good order and are able to organize a good defense and beat back the Gallic attack and score a major victory. Now, most Gallic armies would just split up and melt away after they suffered a big defeat like this, but Vercingetorix manages to organize a retreat and move his troops to a well-fortified town called Alessia. Caesar follows Vercingetorix and besieges this city. And this battle at Alessia ends up going down with Cannae, Hastings, Stalingrad, Waterloo. It's one of the greatest battles in history and one of the most fascinating and unique. To start, Caesar has his forces build a siege wall all the way around Alessia. It is this massive construction project. The wall was 11 miles long and had 24 towers. And just before the wall closes around Alessia, Vercingetorix sends his cavalry out of the city. They won't do much good in a siege anyway, and he tells them to all go back to their home tribes and raise as big of an army as they can to come help. And then Vercingetorix and his army hunker down and wait for the siege. 
these cavalrymen that he had sent out, they go back to their tribes and they find their countrymen ready to fight. So they organize a relief army, which is described as the largest army of Gauls ever assembled. It had potentially as many as 250,000 men in it. When Caesar hears that this army has been raised, he has his army turn around and build another wall facing the opposite direction to protect themselves from the relief army. So basically, they have built this giant camp with a wall facing in to besiege Vercingetorix in Alessia and a wall facing out to defend against the Gallic relief army. And these fortifications are crazy. It's not just a wall with some towers. On each side, they build what I can only describe as a deadly obstacle course. They dig two trenches, fill one with water, and place sharpened stakes under the water to impale anyone who might jump in. At the top of the other trench, there are sharpened stakes to slow the climb. And outside the trenches, they make these primitive like landmines by digging holes and putting sharpened stakes at the bottom and then covering the holes with branches and dirt to make them completely hidden. Inside all of this, they have walls that are 12 feet high with a screen of sharpened stakes at the top to make them more difficult to climb. And they also have tall towers at regular intervals from which they can throw spears and shoot arrows down on the attacking Gauls. And it's a good thing they built all these fortifications because the Romans are hugely outnumbered. We can't totally rely on the numbers that Caesar gives us because he had an incentive to exaggerate the number of men that he defeated in battle. But it's fair to say that the Romans were outnumbered at least two to one, probably something more like four to one, five to one. This huge relief army of Gauls shows up just in the nick of time when Vercingetorix's forces were about to starve and surrender Alessia. The relief army launches an all-out attack on the Roman defenses basically as soon as they arrive. And Vercingetorix waits to see where they attack. And then he attacks on the opposite side, on the inward side of the Roman wall. And despite these awesome defensive fortifications, the Romans are just so heavily outnumbered that it's looking pretty close for a while. But in the end, they are able to hold their fort, and the first Gallic attack fails. So the Gauls go back and they reevaluate the situation, and they notice a weak part of the Roman fortifications. It's at the bottom of a hill, so it doesn't have quite as many trenches and moats and booby traps, and so it's a little easier to assault. So they give one last desperate assault on this weaker part of the fortifications. They send as many men as they can to attack it from both sides. This area of the fortifications is at the bottom of a hill, but it is still in a position that is more elevated than the rest of the Roman fort. So everyone on the battlefield can see this attack and they are watching it and cheering like it's a really high stakes football game. If some Gallic warriors start to make some progress on top of the Roman walls, all the Gauls start to cheer. And then if the Romans counterattack and throw them off the walls, all the Romans cheer. It's quite an amazing scene. I mean, imagine going to a sporting event where you're watching people literally kill each other and you know that if your team loses, you are going to die, right? It's a really high-stakes sporting event. Caesar keeps feeding in fresh troops to protect this key battle area, and eventually he leads some forces himself. Caesar wears this very conspicuous crimson cloak, so everyone knows it's him showing up and he's fighting side by side with his men. This galvanizes both sides. The Romans are fighting furiously for their commander, and the Gauls are fighting more furiously because they realize, okay, Caesar is here. This must be the climactic moment of the battle. It's all going to be decided here. And not just the battle, but the whole war is going to be decided here. Before coming to fight, Caesar had sent out some cavalry to go loop around the main Gallic assault force. And just when it's looking like the Roman defense might collapse, this group of cavalry shows up behind the Gauls and breaks them. 
The Gallic Relief Army is crushed, and they scatter. The next day, Verkingeterix puts on his nicest armor, grabs his finest weapons, and rides out of the city gates to where Caesar is sitting. He throws down his arms and offers himself up to Caesar, basically as a sacrifice, hoping that Caesar will show as much clemency and mercy toward his men as possible. The Gallic Rebellion was over, and after eight years of warfare, Caesar had finally established full control over all of Gaul. The Roman historian Tacitus would later say, the Romans created a desert and called it peace. It's hard to say exactly how many people were killed in Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, but Caesar himself estimated that it was around a million. Even if it wasn't quite that many, and it probably wasn't, the war on Gaul was absolutely devastating for the locals. But even devastated, Gaul was a huge tax windfall for Caesar and the Roman Republic. With one war, Caesar had gone from Rome's biggest debtor to one of its wealthiest men. With his newfound wealth, he built huge public works in Rome and across the Roman world to celebrate his victories and himself. With the war in Gaul over, Caesar returned to his headquarters in Cisalpine Gaul and diverted his attention back to Rome. Unfortunately, things were still not looking good for him there. The Optimates, who hated Caesar so much, now looked to be in a much stronger position. They were able to use Pompey, who was no longer allied with Caesar, against him. They made it clear that the second Caesar came back to Rome, he would be prosecuted for corruption and war crimes. On a certain level, Caesar was certainly guilty of these things, but no more so than basically everyone else in Roman politics. They were doing this for personal reasons they didn't want to see Caesar succeed. Caesar is furious about this. From his perspective, he just single-handedly created Rome's biggest foreign territory and generated a ton of revenue for the Roman state. Over the last eight years, he had done nothing but bring glory and material gain to Rome. And now he was going to come home, not only to less power than he started with, but to be treated like a criminal? So what he wanted was to have his term in Gaul extended until he was eligible to run for consul again. Remember, as governor of Gaul, he was a magistrate, and so could not be prosecuted. And if he was elected consul, he would again be a magistrate, and would not be able to be prosecuted. So he was trying to make sure that there was no gap time. The Optimates in the Senate managed to sink any proposal to have his term in Gaul extended. They forced Caesar to make a choice. Submit himself to prosecution and potentially conviction in exile, or be declared a rebel of the state. As the last hopes of a peaceful compromise broke down, people started to gear up for a civil war. The odds were stacked against Caesar. His army was numerically much smaller than the one controlled by the Senate in Rome. And they had Pompey to lead their army. Pompey was still considered the greatest Roman general of all time. Caesar's victories in Gauls were certainly impressive, but no one seriously thought he was as great of a general as the mighty Pompey. Everyone assumed that one of two things would happen. Either Caesar would keep his troops in Gaul and try to fight a defensive war against Pompey in order to even the odds, or he would realize that his position was completely hopeless and surrender to the Senate at the last minute. Instead, Caesar decided on a move that was bold, bordering on suicidal. He would take a single legion and attack Rome itself. The Rubicon River is a small river in northern Italy. At the time, it was the official marker that divided Caesar's region of Cisalpine Gaul from Italy proper. If Caesar crossed the Rubicon with an army at his back, he would be considered in rebellion and he would be at war with Rome. Once he crossed the Rubicon, there was no going back. As he led his army south, he paused at the Rubicon River. 
he walked away from his army along the river and thought to himself silently. Even now, he could still make peace with Pompey and the Senate. At this point, he would almost certainly be convicted of crimes against Rome and sent into exile, but it would be a comfortable exile in Marseille where he could keep his life and his vast fortune. Even in exile, he would be able to use his money and his reputation to have an outsized influence on Roman politics. Furthermore, the lives of thousands of Roman soldiers and civilians would be saved. He could have all of this if he decided not to cross the Rubicon. But he would have to give up his dream of being the first man, the most powerful man in Rome. He walked back to his men. Let the die be cast, he said. And with that, he crossed the Rubicon and continued his march toward Rome. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of How to Take Over the World. If you like what you're hearing, please give me a five-star rating and review. Join me next time for the conclusion of the life of Julius Caesar on how to take over the world. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.